Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 11 of Unknown Orbits, Corpus Earthling by Louis Charbonneau. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Tonight's episode is a title you might be familiar with. Corpus Earthling may ring a bell for you. And there's a good reason why. It's a novel that was adapted by The Outer Limits, the original Outer Limits TV show back in 1963. Um, so we will be talking about the novel itself, the writer, and then talking a little bit about The Outer Limits television show. The title was familiar uh, instantly, uh, and I know I must have seen the episode because I've seen all of The Outer uh, I'm Limits. I'm sure once I begin to describe it to you, it'll all come back to you. So basically, um, the novel Corpus Earthling, published in 1960, it tells the story of a university instructor's boring life, which is interrupted by hearing voices in his head of several malignant alien entities plotting secretly. He frantically tries to find the source of the voices, but during one overheard conversation, the voices express shock that there is a listener out there eavesdropping on them. He realizes they are referring to him. Robert Culp. Yes, but that's getting ahead here. Okay. We'll talk about the TV show in a minute. So you can picture Robert Culp as I'm describing what happens in the novel. I did not picture Robert Culp when I read the book because the character in the book is nowhere near as cool as Robert Culp. You'll come to understand that in a second here. So he realizes that they're referring to him as the listener. And they're saying, well, we have to find this guy and kill him. So he immediately becomes very paranoid. And of course, he's also wondering, am I going crazy? I'm hearing voices in my head. So the rest of the book is basically the aliens are trying to find him and use their mind. And several times they attempt to force him to kill himself, like walking in front of a train or drowning himself in the ocean. And then they also take over the minds of weaker minded people and they try to kill him. So it's a most of the last two thirds of the book is just him trying to find these aliens, running away, being chased by them, them trying to kill him, other people trying to kill him. And then the uh, climax of the book is that he realizes that the reason he can hear them is that he has his own telepathic powers and he begins to use his telepathic powers to influence other people and to ultimately to destroy the aliens. And it turns out the aliens were these uh, tiny little parasitic creatures that were embedded into rocks brought back from the very first Mars mission. So that's the whole story. It is not a particularly great book. I didn't pick it because Charbonneau was a particularly important writer. Actually, he was a fairly uh, undistinguished writer. He was a longtime newspaper reporter for the Los Angeles Times. He wrote novels as a sideline. He, he was more well-known for writing a number of westerns under the pen name Carter Travis Young. He wrote, only wrote a handful, maybe uh, half a dozen or eight science fiction novels in his lifetime, late 
in his uh, life, he turned to writing horror novels. He wrote the novelization of the 1976 movie Embryo, starring Rock Hudson and Diane Lane. Oh. I, I vaguely remember that movie. Barely. So he was not a very distinguished writer, and I can see why. Because quite frankly, Corpus Earthling is not a very well-written novel. It, number one, it's filled with purple prose. It's all first-person and a great deal of the book takes place inside the head and with the thoughts of the main character. And this is one of the problems, I think, when you write in first person and you're basically including all of the thoughts that are going through the head of your character, the thoughts and the emotions, it can be just overwhelming to the reader, especially when he's constantly in a state of paranoia or fear or excitement or anger. So there's all these wild mood swings that you're taking on a, a, a trip with as the reader. It's it's very ex exhausting to read a book like that, especially if the author is not a particularly good writer. I wouldn't say it was a terribly enjoyable read. It was interesting from the standpoint of being familiar with the with story from the Outer Limits. But the other thing, this was an incredibly horny book. What year was it written? 1960. If you've ever read a cheesy men's adventure book from that, that period, from the 1970s, 1960s, or you've read any trashy sort of novel from that period, it's got the whole, her firm, ripe bosoms, her heaving breasts. She pressed her shapely hips against him, and he could feel the heat of her burning through her dress. I mean, it's an incredibly horny book. Every woman in this book is basically, in some way or another, panting with lust, wanting to bed the main character. And he does things like he spies on his neighbor, watches her undress. It, it's just very distracting. You know, you have this whole narrative about the aliens and all of the thoughts that are going through his mind. And then a woman walks in the door and then all of a sudden it's the, the next two or three pages are just pure, raw, pulpy sex. So it's very, very disconcerting. I've got like eight things to say now, but what was the author's name first? Louis Charbonneau. Okay, because I immediately thought of Hadelman when you started talking about sex jammed into a story. Mm -hmm. Though as a horny teenager, he, he did a really good job of putting the sex in the story. But that's an aside. Okay. I have three serious questions here, but if you want to continue no, before uh, my questions. That's, that is the basic background on Mr. Charbonneau and, and the, the novel. So let's jump right into your impressions of the novel, and then we'll get into the, the Outer Limits after that. First, I've heard the phrase purple prose before. But I've never had a really good handle what it means. I mean, I know it's supposed to be overly... In my mind, what it is, is it's a combination of cliches, stereotypes, and a reliance on color for description, a reliance on jarring descriptive terms. So kind of uh, awkward. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I hear a lot of stuff in there like the moon burst up into the night like a exploding uvula. You know, it's just, it was just ridiculous comparisons that this guy used throughout that you could tell that he was trying to write in maybe sort of a hard-boiled style. He did write some mysteries, so uh, maybe he was coming from that background where he, he was copying the hard-boiled detective, Mickey Spillane sort of novels of the day, that whole genre. But it was, some of them were just very ridiculous metaphors that he was using to try to describe things and add, a, add, add punch. This would explain why I've really pissed off 
a professional writer who had like a dozen books published at that point because she had me read something. I think she was trying to change her style. And I pointed out that well, it's a little annoying. You punch every single noun and verb with an adjective or adverb just constantly. Yes. And he's guilty of that. Okay. He was a professional newspaper man in LA. So obviously he probably had contacts in the film and television industry. And he did manage to consistently get stuff published throughout his lifetime. Not a huge volume of material. But getting back to that point, me personally, when I write, I very rarely use similes or metaphors. I just don't feel comfortable. I've always felt that similes and metaphors, they just seem like they're over the top way too often. They're distracting. As a writer, I feel I don't want my writing style to be a distraction to the reader. I want to tell the story. I want to tell it efficiently. I want to you know, put color and description and emotion into it where necessary, but to try to do it in a way that is not distracting. And that's what I, how I feel about metaphors and similes. They're distracting. What's interesting is I'm trying to build more of that into my writing because the most common criticism of my writing is that it's sparse. Yeah. Um, and for some of us, that's a little easier than it, than it is for others. Like for me, I'm able to paint with broad strokes enough description to create a setting. So I'm able to do that. I know for you, that's a little bit more of a struggle. You have to consciously think about, you know, I need to put some description in here. So it's kind of a difference in, in style. There's some people that I'm sure when they sit down to write, they're just um, regurgitating reams of description and metaphors and similes. They're just piling on all of this extra material on top of the dialogue, characterization, and plot. There's nothing wrong with that, at least in the first draft. I mean, it's better to put a lot of that onto the paper and then cut it out later and trim it down. I think I would rather have that problem as a writer, that I have too much material and all you have to do is decide how much of it needs to be trimmed down to make it more manageable and economical than to be struggling and saying, man, this whole section needs a ton more descriptive text. And now I got to sit down and consciously think about how I'm going to add descriptive text or a lot of this exposition needs to come out of dialogue rather than in the text. So I need to find a way to write more dialogue. And that's in the very individual. The different approaches make sense because you're more novel and I've been more short story. Right. right. Like in that one book that we worked on together for a while, um, if you look at it, Basically, every chapter is just another short story. They're just in a and, row. Yeah, and that's a valid way to write a, write a novel. Someday, just for fun, I'd like to try doing that, to try to see if I could write an episodic novel. But, you know, it's, it's funny because your background is in short stories. You, you've written a lot of good short stories. You've actually had some published. I haven't tried to write a short story in 10 years or more. Once I started writing novels, that's all I wanted to do. And when you're writing a novel, there's a lot more that you're worrying about than you are in a short story because you're trying to set things up for the next chapter. You're trying to set things up for a later important event. You're, you're doing foreshadowing. You're thinking about a lot more things, I think, when you're writing a novel than you are writing a short story. So maybe that's why I don't do a lot of metaphors and similes is because I'm thinking more... I, I write a lot of dialogue. I don't tend to have to add more dialogue when I go back and do revisions because I, I get a lot of the stuff down in dialogue. And it's always better, for instance, to put 
your background in stuff into dialogue rather than putting it into the text and having people's uh, emotions coming out through dialogue and their character coming out through dialogue is always better. So that's kind of my technique, I guess. And something about metaphors and similes just seems to get in, in the way of that for me. So uh, that's how I do it. It was really, it was, it, it was really almost painful to read this book because of the purple prose, really. And, you know, he did spice it up with the in a completely inappropriate sexual content. Depends how old you are if it's... Well, I looked him if, up on the... If it's unnecessary. I looked him up on the internet and he's a very dumpy looking old middle-aged man. You know, he looks like a guy that got married and probably never had sex with anybody other than his wife. So I'm, I'm sure there was some repressed desires coming out in his fiction, especially with, and it was always with like young women. It was like, uh, so this guy had a number of things going on with his- uh, Co-workers? His, his students. <laughs> you know, I think oh. two, one of the main women that he has all the sexual content with is one of his students, you know, and she's very, you know- cheerleader type girl you know she's her sweater could barely contain her heaving breasts you know that sort of thing and then his sort of introverted next door neighbor who he spied on while she was undressing winds up you know panting for him later in the book but anyway I, it was it was not a great book but along those lines there was another thing I was going to mention is the other thing I was going to say or one of the other things you reminded me how in science fiction in the mid 60s some other publishers started moving in to try to make money and we're not talking about uh, really traditional big uh, science fiction publishers right we're talking kind of you know low rent back alley quick money and what's interesting is Galaxy Magazine had a series that was fantastic for about 30 issues. Using the layout for their magazine and the printer, they produced novels. They called them Galaxy Novels. And they saved a lot of money because they did it exactly in the form of the magazine. Everything was already set up. And then that series, that arm, got sold a couple times and it ended up changing its name to Galaxy Megabooks. Uh, I'm sorry, I say Megabooks. may have been Megabook. Yeah, MAGA is a different thing. Oh, well, now it is. But I swear that my memory is saying MAGA. I, I should look it up. Anyway, and it was a porn publisher. And they ended up buying, and these are actually quite collectible now because no one bought them. They ended up buying a lot of novels from authors who had written very naughty science fiction books and couldn't sell them. Or in some hilarious cases, they would take something like, and I'm just I'm just making up titles here. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. But they would buy an, a, an actual book called something like the Mysterious Planet. And they would just rename it Planet of Sin. And they would have a picture of a oh, woman of with her dress half ripped off. Yeah, yeah. You know, Charbonneau, this was not his first novel. As I said, he, he wrote Westerns. I have no idea what kind of Westerns he wrote. He wrote some mystery or crime novels. So I'm sure that somewhere along the line, an editor or a publisher was like, Louis... Uh, I like your books, but there's no sex in them. You know, can you spice it up a little bit? So that may have been his clumsy attempt to spice it up a little bit. Maybe the, the original draft of the Corpus Earthling was all about the aliens, and it was just about him fighting the aliens, and there's no women at all in it. That's why it's maybe so jarring that, you know, these lusty scenes that happen. And again, this is all happening first person, and it's coming, you're, you're getting all of his thoughts, which are very horny. Maybe that's why it seems so jarring is because it wasn't in the, the original first draft. And the publisher said, look, we need to spice this up a little bit, and he dropped in some sex. Like the, the weird scene where the very introverted mousy neighbor who clearly 
you know, has a thing for him, but it's unexpressed because she's mousy and introverted. At one point, he looks out his window and she's taking her clothes off and he watches her get naked and nothing comes of that directly. And I'm, I'm just thinking, okay, that, that seemed very odd because it had nothing at all to do with what, what happened after that in the book. Uh, so that does seem like something that was just dropped in. I have a terrible thought that could be correct. That he wrote this book, gave it to the publisher and he's, and the publisher said, well, we want some sex or we're not going to buy it. And he is an inexperienced newspaper reporter who has lived with one woman his whole life. So he, he looks like a guy yeah. that would have been like that. Yes. You look at his picture. So he comes out of the newspaper office, goes two blocks over to a Danish bookstore, <laughs> buys some books and, and copies that. Yeah. That could be. Or else it's, you know, his secret fantasies that he's, you know, because it's, it's young women, very young women, not pedophile young, but like college freshman type women. So, you know, maybe he's got a, a neighbor that he's had a secret sexual. He actually did like watch her get naked once. And, you know, it was one of the highlights of his life. Well, honey, it's research. <laughs> so anyway, so that's the book. We can move on now to why the book is significant. It was adapted for The Outer Limits in season one. Uh, I believe it was, yes, it was episode nine. It was, uh, as Stefano? you mentioned. It I'm going to guess Stefano. No, it was, uh, not, it was not adapted by Stefano. Uh, that would be Joseph Stefano, for those of you who are not familiar with The Outer Limits. It was created by two men, Leslie Stevens and Joseph Stefano. Joseph Stefano was famous for writing the screenplay for Psycho. He was also involved in the Alfred Hitchcock TV show. He was a producer, writer on that show. So we had that background coming into it to create the TV show Outer Limits. And, and as you mentioned, Steve, the star of the adaptation is Robert Culp. He was on three episodes of The Outer Limits. This is the least good of the three because the other two that he were in were two of the very best episodes of, of The Outer Limits, and that was Architects of Fear. I was going to mention that. a fantastic episode. I, I found it a very ordinary episode. I, we're talking about they turn him into an alien right, one. Right, right. Yeah, so he was in Architects of Fear, one of my favorites. Many other people think it's one of the best episodes. And then... Clearly, in my mind, and in a lot of other people's mind, the best episode of The Outer Limits, Demon with a Glass Hand. Absolutely. Written by uh, Harlan Ellison. So, Robert Culp, he and Martin Lando were in multiple episodes. David McCallum was in multiple episodes. And uh, I think there's a few others. But let's take a step back and let's just talk about the show, The Outer Limits. We'll talk a little bit more about Charbonneau and that particular episode in a minute. But I, I wanted to step back. In my opinion... Outer Limits is important for two reasons. To me, it was the first true adult science fiction show on television. Now, there was Tales of Tomorrow, which was the early, mid-1950s, filmed live from those early days of television when they, they did a lot of live drama. That was theoretically an adult TV show, but it was very poor production values. The acting wasn't very good often. You know... It was uh, very uneven, to you, say the you, least. You would be justified in calling it an experiment. Yeah. It was like such, so early in the early days of television that it's hard to give it any kind of credit. The other contender would have been, of course, The Twilight Zone, which premiered several years before Outer Limits. But first of all, I don't consider The Twilight Zone to be a science fiction TV show. It had episodes that were clearly science fiction. It adapted works of science fiction. But the brand of science fiction that The Twilight Zone preferred 
was the sort of softer, more genteel science fiction of Ray Bradbury, that sort of science fiction. And in a future episode, I'd like to talk about the connection between Ray Bradbury and the Twilight Zone. It's a very interesting story. But that was nothing like the harder science fiction that was predominant in the field. You know, Galaxy Magazine, we've talked about them. They had sort of this more, I don't want to say whimsical, but a lighter, softer type of science fiction that Richard Matheson and Ray Bradbury were two proponents of that. Uh, they both worked to some degree in television. So um, I believe H.L. Gold, the editor and creator of Galaxy Science Fiction, specifically said that he wanted more sociological yeah. science fiction. Pe more people-oriented, character-oriented stories rather than gadget stories and hard science stories. But The Outer Limits was not that. The Outer Limits was, I don't want to say harder science fiction, but it was very definitely not the wistful, nostalgic sort of Bradbury science fiction that the Twilight Zone often operated in. And, and it was more, it was very definitely adult-oriented. Serious. Yeah, serious. It was very definitely. It was serious drama. I would compare the quality of the writing, the quality of the production, the quality of the acting, everything on that show to the very best TV dramas of the day. In 1963-64. Yeah. You can pick any yeah. of the very top serious dramas. This show compared very favorably to them. The only concession that the producers had to make was the network said, you need to have a monster in every episode. A monster or an alien in they every, did. every episode. Right. And so they had to work that in somehow. I remember that for one specific episode, I didn't know it was the whole series, uh -huh. which is why Demon with a Glass Hand has demon in the title and right. no sign of a demon anywhere in the in the show. Right. They did back off that in the second season to some degree. What happened in the second season was Stefano stepped away and uh, Leslie Stevens took over running the show. And Leslie Stevens was much more of a hardcore science fiction fan. So the shows shifted in a little bit more of a traditional science fiction direction. And there was a little bit of the darkness of that show was diminished somewhat in the second season. And that's the other thing that I wanted to point out about this show. This was a dark TV show, literally, not figuratively and literally. I mean, figuratively in the fact that it was gothic science fiction. It may be correct to say that they invented gothic science fiction. They didn't create science fiction horror, but they certainly created gothic science fiction where you had sort of the trappings of the traditional universal horror movies and film noir put into these science fiction stories. You're talking more like science fiction where the characters are trapped in the situation. Yes. And that brings up the textual element of the outer limits that was dark. You go back and look at a lot of these episodes, almost every single one, the vast majority of them did not have happy endings. At the end of the show, characters die. For instance, Corpus Earthling. In that version of the story, Culp and his wife, he's married, so there's no horny young girl sex. They flee the aliens to Mexico, and they're at a remote location in Mexico, and they show up, and his wife is possessed by one of the aliens and tries to kill him. She winds up being shot, and it's not clear whether she's dead or not at the end of the episode. The episode ends with him having defeated the aliens, but it looks like his wife is dead. He's carrying her out 
of the shack that they're living into his car and that's how it ends and it's a very downbeat ending yeah he's defeated the aliens but it's not triumphant it looks like his wife is dead or at least very very seriously injured and and that's how it ends almost every episode has a somewhat of a downbeat ending where characters die you know it's brothers or wives or girlfriends or family members or you know colleagues my absolute personal favorite episode it came out of the woodwork Oh, yeah. I've seen that several times. Is where they discover this strange form of energy that's alive and they keep it trapped in a nuclear laboratory and it gets out every now and then and it possesses people and they it kills them and then brings them back from the dead. So at the end of that episode, almost everybody's dead, but brought back to life and they don't defeat the monster. They just contain it back into the containment and that's how the episode ends. And it's... That's very typical of The Outer Limits. Very downbeat. And that's very hard-boiled, very film noir. The idea of characters that are trapped in a situation that's hopeless, that the bad guys, the villains are not defeated. They're only temporarily given setbacks or they temporarily escape the clutches of the bad guys. And The Outer Limits is full of that. That's the textual darkness. But the actual literal darkness is the cinematography I'm not using the right term, but the cinematography of the show, many episodes were director of photography was Conrad Hall, a cinematographer who after the show went on to win three Academy Awards for cinematography. He used that classic German expressionist shadow and light, dark black and white photography, created an atmosphere of darkness and gloom and shadow. I would say I can't think of any other television show of that era that did a better job of using black and white photography to an advantage than that show. Maybe The Untouchables, perhaps, but most of the other shows were just black and white because they they had to be. They hadn't really found a way to do uh, affordable color TV yet. So it was just black and white. But this show completely used it and used it to an advantage. It's a dark show, and Corpus Earthling, to me is not one of the very best episodes, but it's decent. It definitely used that literal darkness. There's some very striking... Um, Gerd Oswald was one of the main directors of at least the first season of The Outer Limits. He had this... uh, He would use cockeyed angles and extreme close-ups. He had a very claustrophobic sort of a directing style, which was perfect for the show. And he directed uh, this particular episode as well. I've been dying to use a phrase, hesitating only because I'm not 100% sure I remember it correctly. The Dutch angle? Yes, that, yes, that's what they call it when it's cockeyed, when it's not a straight on shot, it's a little bit cockeyed. And he used it to good effect in this show. So I would say that the combination of Conrad Hall and, and Kurt Oswald elevated this episode a, a bit more than the story itself would have merited. So it's a decent episode, not necessarily one of my favorites. Now, the interesting thing is, this was not the only adaptation of a Louis Charbonneau story on The Outer Limits. There was also an episode in season two. I kind of want to try to guess. but See I if you can guess hint. which one it is. I need a hint, though. It's another one about evil inanimate objects. Okay, it does not have Warren Oates in it. No, it does not. It does have a very recognizable star, though. I'll have to pass. It's Cry of Silence. Season 2, episode 6. It's the Evil Tumbleweeds episode. I've never seen that. I'm no. kidding. I've seen that. Of course, Eddie, Eddie Arnold. <laughs> Eddie Albert. Eddie Albert, Albert is the star. And it's 
probably one of the worst episodes of the of the show. Okay, I'm going to say 40% of it is one of the worst episodes. 60% of it is pretty good. I would go the other way. I'd say 60% <laughs> bad, maybe 70% bad, 30% good. I mean, it for the crying out loud, it has people being menaced by tumbleweeds and has a farmer possessed by tumbleweeds yeah and it's it's one of those great character actors that if you saw him you'd immediately recognize him you know who probably played a million hillbillies in his entire career okay here's the really bad part is the actress who plays his wife is i'm trying to remember she spends the entire episode screaming hysterically and she's unbelievably annoying she's like a you know well into her 50s middle-aged actress who came up her she's actually the sister of gypsy rose lee the, the famous uh, wow. stripper she had like a domineering stage mother and her sister was the big star and she was the one that also had a career you know in films but it never really developed the ability to act apparently so that's terrible baby jane is what we're talking yeah it's kind of yeah. a baby jane sort of a thing you know and she's just really makes it hard to watch that episode and there's some bad dialogue in there. And I'm sorry, evil tumbleweeds. How menacing can a pile of tumbleweeds actually be? <laughs> okay. I think this is one of those things where you're into it and you think, wow, that, that most of it was, was really great and, and scary and menacing. And then you start hearing someone else talk about it and yeah. you start to realize, well, maybe I was just in the right mood. Well, I mean, it, again, it's kind of like, Corpus Earthling, you know the the direction, the the cinematography, the music makes the tumbleweeds appear a little bit more menacing than they otherwise would be. But I mean, there's many scenes where it's obvious that they're being pulled by a string and they're flying through the air, and you've got the you know the the classic low budget thing where the actor has to grab whatever it is that's attacking him and, <laughs> yeah. and shake it around. Like, like the famous scene in Ed Wood oh, yeah, the where octopus. Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi has to fight the octopus and the octopus isn't working. So he goes, oh, God damn it. Let, and he just goes down there and grabs the octopus tentacles and goes, ah! <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like that. So you've got these rest, the poor Eddie Albert is wrestling with tumbleweeds try to make them look scary so that again you know that that was one, adapted from one of charbonneau's stories so i don't know he had a thing for evil inanimate objects possessed by aliens so not a not an original idea apparently um but it was good enough to to get produced into another episode of the outer limits so oh, the check cleared yeah so um i don't know if you have any other thoughts about the outer limits uh, it's a favorite show of mine i i love the darkness, the film noir feel, the fact that uh, 90% of the aliens, well, not 90%, 70, 80% of the aliens in the show are malignant. You know, they're not friendly aliens. They didn't come here to make friends with us or teach us anything. They came here to kill us. And I love that. And, um, you know, a lot of unhappy endings. I think the only other thing I would say about it is just enthusing about my favorite episodes. Sure. Which what, glass what are, what are hand? Your, what, glass hand is clearly yeah. one of the great episodes. What, what other ones are, are favorites of yours? Um, without seeing a list, because I tend to get them mixed up with uh, Twilight Zone and Tales. Oh, that's Tomorrow. a very common. That's a very common thing. Um, the prisoners of, or the rejects of the giant ants. Oh, the Zanti misfits. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's that's 
one of the someone, episodes that's listed on a lot of best of lists. Someone famous wrote that, I think. I don't remember who wrote that, but Bruce Dern starred in that. Are one. you kidding me? He was the escaped criminal, I believe. Wow. Like it was a bank robber on the run or something like that. And then he, and then, but the the, the gimmick on that is that the this alien race of ants sent. They're prisoners to Earth as like a penal colony. So like Earth was a, like a penal colony for them. And that's why these, these ants wound up attacking Bruce Dern and his girlfriend. But that's on a lot of best of lists. Any other ones? Oh, as I said, it's hard to re- recall. Well, the, the other Harlan Ellison one, Soldier, that's pretty good. That was ripped off by uh, James Cameron for Terminator. It was not ripped off by James Cameron. Yes, it was. The, a, a court said so. Paramount... I think it was Paramount, did not want to fight it. They could have, and they could have won. You and know, to this day, Cameron uh, Watch the episode and tell me that... I'm uh, sorry. Watch the episode. It's clearly ripped off by James Cameron for The Terminator. Uh, no question about it. I disagree. Plus, that lawsuit actually combined two of Harlan Ellison's stories. Oh, yeah. Demon of the Glass Hand a little bit, too, because uh, the, the traveling back in the past to kill somebody, uh, that aspect of it. Okay. Which has never happened before in science fiction. Well, that, yeah. I mean, that's... But, you know, I think he, if that's all that Harlan had for a case was that part uh, from Demon of the Glass Hand, I don't think he would have won. But Soldier... I mean, you're talking about a, a, a warrior going back in time and other warriors coming back to try to kill him. And and he winds up, you know, just watch it. It's I've seen it. it I've it, seen it. I, it's I, not my favorite episode anyway. It's, I, I thought it was pretty good. What made it good was the performance of Michael Ansara, a greatly underrated character actor, um, and his use of that language that they invented for him. I don't remember the. I remember the accent. Yeah, he, but they, he had like this uh, abbreviated English that that was initially difficult to decipher, and that, that was that's that was a good science fictiony part of that episode where the the doctor is able to finally figure out what he's saying and is able to translate it. And Michael and Sarah really carried that off well. Uh, I mean, he deserved a lot of credit for the success of that episode. I think. And another story where cats were leaders. If you remember, there was just oh, a he very talked, short scene. No, that was the show. He He's talked, talking to the cat. Yeah, he 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 thought he's, he called a commander, uh-huh. you know, because they they carried messages or something in the future. So he's talking to the family cat. Did you know that Michael and Sarah was married to Barbara Eden? No, lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so, any other episodes that you want to highlight, or can you remember? Or? I can't recall fast enough. Uh, definitely time travel. Is, is always top of my list. Yeah, there's quite a few of those. Um, but uh, Though I hate a time travel story that doesn't have consistent logic. I'm a bit I'm 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 a bit fussy about that. Yeah. I, I want I want to know the rules and I want you to keep to the rules. Well that sounds that sounds like a topic for a future podcast. Possibly. The rules of time travel. I as you know, I have worked too much to determine my own rules. <laughs> well, all right. Well, that wraps it up for episode 11. Uh, please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.